0: Welcome back to the thing with feathers podcast. I'm Courtney Ellis, and I'm here today with a newly minted Episcopal priest as of just a couple of days ago and the top birder in West Virginia, according to eBird last year. Welcome David Johnston.
1: Thank you, Courtney. It's good to be on. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, David, you are a birder in West Virginia, and a few episodes back, we had Dr. Joan Strassman on the show, and she's the author of Slow Birding. She thinks okay. it's it's kind of a meditative practice. You should sit in your backyard and just kind of appreciate what's there. Your birding philosophy seems to be the opposite of this, and <laughs> I want to hear about this because I think there's merit in both. How did you see 232 different species of birds last year
1: (laughs) yeah i would say for last year i did embrace a quite different philosophy of birding and i am not going for a big year this year um it it just kind of started with i moved to a new area uh here in huntington west virginia in 2021 and there are more birders in this county than there were where I was before, Athens, West Virginia, Mercer County. There was really just one other guy who used eBird or birded that I knew of. Um, and so having other people who go out fairly regularly just made me uh, excited to see new birds in my state. And then, you know, we're closer to the Ohio River Flyway because, I mean, we're on the Ohio River. And so it, I started the year just thinking, like, I want to see a lot of birds in West Virginia this year, and it would be nice to land maybe in the top 10 for the state for the year. And I figured I had a good shot just living in a part of the state that has a bit more diversity than others. Then as I was just working towards that goal and seeing where others were kind of landing, I was like, I have a shot this year. Um, And so how I saw so many was just Uh, Really learning from other people. I mean, I think that's kind of what um, I learned through that experience is learning from people who have birded this area for decades, and about like what they expect to see and when, and trusting their wisdom about how to see these birds. And then people just wanting to help me out. Sometimes it was driving across the state, and that's partly why I'm not doing it this year because I'm like, man, you know, spending six hours in a car to not see a (laughs) bird—that's moved on—is hard. Um, so yeah, it was just, and, and it does get kind of frantic. I did feel frantic at times, like, oh man, like I got to see, like, I got to go chase that bird to make sure, uh, cause the guy who, who was closest to me is also in this area. He was somebody I learned from as well, a guy named David Paddock, who, uh, I think is like on, for his life list in West Virginia is like number two, 300 something species in West Virginia over the course of his life. Um, so it was frantic at times.
0: I love the reminder, though, that you know, if if you work for it, and it sounds like I want to hear some of the stories of the most intense. I have to get in my car. I have to go moments that you had last year, but that if you work for it, there are so many different species of birds you can see right in your home state. Because yeah. I think you know, I, I get these birding magazines and I flip through them. And I'm like, oh, I have to go to Honduras. I have to go to Costa Rica. I need to get to Florida. I have to go to Maine. And to remember that right where you are placed. There is this wonderful biodiversity. Um, sometimes it means, you know, crawling through some underbrush, et cetera, or driving across the state, but there's a lot there. So tell tell us, first of all, some of our listeners are very new to the world of birding. What is a big year?
1: So a big year is you're basically out to see as many birds as possible in that year. And so you might have a global big year, meaning just around the world. And there's people who are quite intense. And I mean, it's basically your full-time job to go travel the world and birding. And, you know, you got to figure out some way to afford that or get sponsored. Um, You know, people will do U S or continental U S big years, or, um, you know, mine was just for the state, right? So it's just trying to see as many birds in a calendar year within the boundaries of the state of West Virginia. And so, yeah, to do that does mean, usually some travel. So for here, because West Virginia does have different kind of regions, um, people think of the whole state as mountainous, which is true, but the area I'm in is what's called the Appalachian Plateau. And so while it's hilly, the way that was formed is through rivers and creeks eroding a plateau down and then forming the hills. And so if you get on top of the hill and you look out, they're all about the same height. But as you go further east in the state, uh those are like the highlands, the higher mountains. And so there's some uh different, I mean it's just a different ecology there, higher elevation, you know, different different trees. And so you get some species there that you might otherwise have to go pretty far in the northeast or even up into Canada to see. Um, and then kind of some like micro kind of micro environmental places where like there's some birds you can see just there in the state. Um, so yeah, I had to try like, so there's some birds that are known where they're pretty hard to see in the state, but there's like a spot that everybody knows. If you go there, you can see it like there's the barn owl spot and there's a Chuck Wills widow spot. Which <laughs> and, is a bird
0: and, for those of you who haven't heard of that one. That's an yes. actual bird name.
1: Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a night jar kind of people are perhaps more familiar with whippoorwills. So uh, somebody decided that this other night jar is saying Chuck Wills widow. I don't know that I hear it, but but sure. It's just in
0: perpetual mourning,
1: that poor bird. That poor bird, yeah. <laughs> I guess when you don't have like the internet to distract yourself, like you just really have to work hard to to be entertained.
0: <laughs> totally. And here we are, we have the internet and we're doing this to ourselves, David. We're, go- we're going out <laughs> burning on purpose. We have the whole internet at our fingertips. I don't know what that yeah. says about
1: us. Yeah, and, and I think the other part of a big year that maybe I didn't touch on is that it also means if there's something rare, you're chasing that down. Um, So last year, for example, there was um, some glossy ibises in West Virginia, which I I don't know how many state records there are, but it's certainly, it's not the first time, but uh, is fairly rare. And so that was a couple hours away, which I did get. Um, So yeah, it's like when those those rarities pop up, which you can set eBird to email you about, or if you have good birding connections, uh, there's actually like a, um, group me, uh, group chat text thing that alerts go out on. So you can, you can drop what you're doing and hop in your car and drive three hours across the state to go see this bird. If you want to,
0: when you get those alerts, is that what's the feeling? Is it joy? Is it stress? Is it okay? Here go? goes. Like the, it feels like the, you know, the starter gun has gone off and you're at the, the, the track meet a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I would say it depends on what's going on in, in, in my day at that given day. Like it, you know, I take, uh, Fridays and Saturdays as my weekend. And so if it comes on a Thursday and it's not too far away, it's like, perfect. Like I can drive, like I have tomorrow off, my kids are in school. Uh, my wife is working and that's usually my birding day and I can just go and find it. Um, if it's something that people see on a Saturday and I know, you know, the other birders around here and the other people who are gunning for that top spot, most of them, um, don't go to church on Sunday. So (laughs) they're free to gallivant wherever and find it. So then it's stressful. Um, and then particularly if it's somebody who's like close in the ranking to me sees it then it, then it, then it becomes this burden. Like, Oh no, like he's seen it. So now I have to see it. Right. Uh,
0: You're going to go and siphon the gas out of his tank across town.
1: I will say for, (laughs) so, so with the guy who, who came in number two, David Paddock, again, he's somebody I birded with and it was, it was friendly. Like if I saw something, I let him know if he saw something, he let me know there was no like, That's what I found, at least in this state. I've heard in other states, it can be different, but at least here, nobody hid any birds or say sat on their, their siding and waited three or four days to let everybody know. Or sometimes it'll be like, oh, well, this bird was seen on private land and they are not open to more birders seeing it. Just for me. Just for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, that has not been a thing I've encountered in this state. And that's what I'm thankful for. It's very collaborative, it's friendly competition. Um, But yeah, getting that rare bird alert, it runs the gambit of yes, like that's cool, especially if it's nearby under an hour, that's joyful. If it's three to four hours away and I have a busy schedule and then somebody else I'm competing with sees it, then it's it's a burden.
0: (laughs) <laughs> no pun intended. It's a burden.
1: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Okay. The- well, it's a good thing I'm a priest now. Now I can absolve terrible puns.
0: <laughs> it's part of the job description. They don't tell right. you that in the seminary, but it is. <laughs> yes. So David, when is your next big year? You said you're taking the year off. You're taking a little breather.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Because even right now, it's still letting go of that impulse. Uh, because, and it's been killing me. This year, like a couple weeks ago, we had the first state record of a Townsend solitaire, a Western bird. So it's a Western bird um, that's fairly easy to see at the right elevations and the right habitat out West. They are known to be vagrant, but this was the first state record, meaning never before uh, ID'd uh, with proof here in the state. And it was a little over four hours away. And it, it was in the midst of, transitions with my ordination and family coming into town just not in the cards because even if it even for my friday my birding day like i have other responsibilities with my kids and stuff like i don't have eight hours to sit in a car and then some of my friends locally who went you know it's the eight hour round trip it took them three and a half hours to find the bird and as one of my local friends said you know four hours is a long way to drive for a gray bird Yeah. Totally. So, so it is a little bit of letting it go. I don't, I don't know uh, when my next big year is. I mean, I'm always happy to have a year of birding where I see more birds than the last. Um, my biggest year so far, like worldwide would have been 2019 where in that year, I think I'm getting that right. It, it's a year where I ha- I had the opportunity to both go out to New Mexico to visit family, do some birding in Louisiana and then I also went to Israel on a big group trip, but I stayed a few extra days and hired a guide for a day. But this year, my wife and I, who's who's been getting into birding, we are we are planning a trip to Costa Rica, like you said, and I'm super pumped for that. So I, I don't really have plans for a big year like that. Um I'm I'm kind of just hoping to this year let the birds come to me or just, mm. you know. Oh, Perhaps not a, the whole slow bird philosophy, but a little less frantic, a little less uh, gas in the tank, hopefully. Um, so my the thing I'm focusing on this year is kind of a big year. It's called five-mile radius birding. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. So it's like you, it's just trying to stay closer to home. And so my goal this year is just to see more birds in my five-mile radius than I did last year. I did keep track of that. So I think last year it was... 153 species within my five mile radius, which does encompass some of Ohio because we're we're right on the river. So if I can see more than 153 species of birds within my five mile radius this year, that'll be good. I'm at 60 right now.
0: That's awesome, it's January. Yeah. We're recording yes. this in January. This is gonna air yes. later in the spring, but my goodness, that's
1: fabulous. Yep, yeah, and it's good because I have friends on both sides of the river uh, there's a guy who, uh, Brian Smith, who's over in Ohio and he, he feels like he's the only one who birds outside of the river. Mm. Um, and so, uh, he's been helpful and then I know he's excited to have somebody else looking as well. That's yeah. so fun. It's good to have yeah. goals. Yeah. Yeah. Just something, just something to keep it interesting. So that way, you know, maybe it's the 20th time one's seen a belted Kingfisher or whatever, but now it's in my five mile radius. So that's interesting.
0: That is interesting. And that is a very accessible type of goal for people. You know, it, it's yeah. if you can't do global birding, then you can do birding in the U.S. If you can't do birding in the U.S., do it in your state. If you can't do it in your state, think about your five-mile radius. And if you can't yeah. do that, think about just your backyard or your front yard or your what you can see from the window of your apartment. I think that the wonderful thing about birding is it is very accessible to a wide range of abilities, but also a wide range of time constraints and desires and, and
1: energy levels Right. Yeah. That's something, uh, Colleen, my wife has said is, as she's kind of come, come to learn birding, uh, you know, with me, I was into the hobby much longer is she's like, she said something like, what I like about birding as a hobby is you can be a little bit into it, right? Like there's certain hobbies, like you have to be all in, you really have to master something, invest a lot of money and time to really even approach adequate at it. But with, yeah, birding, I mean, even if, you just have a passing interest. You can, I mean, maybe one day in a year you really go out birding and that's fine. Like, it's not like you're going to, I mean, of course, there's lots to learn in birding, but like you can just be a little bit interested and kind of pick it up, put it down, go with people who know more than you and enjoy it. Yeah. It's a great hobby.
0: Totally. I love that about it. And I love that generally the world of birders is very generous in who they'll consider a birder. Like, do you enjoy looking out your window at your backyard and, and seeing what's there? Okay, you can be a birder. There's not this high bar for entry. You and I both come from theological worlds where sometimes there's this attitude <laughs> of like, oh, well, if you haven't read all the X, Y, Z, then I don't know that you can properly. And, and birding is like, yep, that's a crow. Awesome. You're in.
1: Yeah, yes, Exactly. Yeah. And especially here, I, I found it that I was actually, or when I first got into the hobby, I didn't really, I was in the Cincinnati area where there was an active Audubon. And at first I was a little nervous. Like I was like, maybe this is one of those hobbies where I enjoy the hobby, but maybe I don't enjoy the people who enjoy the hobby. You know what I mean? I, I used to play a certain uh, collectible card game that I won't name lest it's fans. Um, come find me. But, uh, I found like, I enjoy this game. I don't always enjoy the people who enjoy this game though. And that made it kind of hard to keep up with it. Um, But with birding, I mean, it's like anything, there's people who maybe you don't mesh with, but in general, I have found birders super supportive And, and kind of being on the flip side with introducing birding to other people, like my wife or my son who's 10 is when they're new to it, it makes it all new for me again, which I love. Like, Oh, like you're brand new to this. Like, yeah, this is a blue jay. This is an eastern bluebird. You know, this is a northern cardinal, like these species that are super common. But when you're with somebody who it's new to, like, for me, it's that same rush of when I was first new to this, this hobby as well
0: thousand percent. That spark of delight never gets old. And when it's someone else's spark, there's a, there's a sense that it sparks something in in you as well. And that's such a, that's such a gift. My, my husband is not yet a birder. I've been working on him now for several years. We're working on it. But (laughs) the other day, just a couple of days ago, we have this backyard fountain that he set up. And I was like, oh, in my head, I think this, this might turn into something that the birds like, but I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to let him set up this backyard fountain. And I was, I was Going to head out on a bird walk, and I've got my binoculars and my shoes on, and I hear him go, "Courtney, get back here!" And I I go around to the back of the house, and the fountain is full of um, yellow yellow rumped warblers. And he's like, what are those? Look at that. That's amazing. You know, and and they are one of the most common bird species we have here in Southern California right now, this time of year. But I didn't say that. I was just like, they are amazing because they are. And they are. I saw a little spark in him. And David, I'm going to tell you, I am holding out hope because I think that that might be the first step in a long, wonderful journey for him. So join me in prayer.
1: (laughs) I will. I will. I will hold this hope with you. Thank yeah. You. yeah, it makes me think uh, you've probably heard the phrase a spark bird or the bird that gets somebody into it. Yeah, I think for my wife, it was um, the Florida scrub jay because she was living in Florida. We met through Twitter and then, um, you know, I came to visit and I was like, I would love to see a Florida scrub jay because its range is very small. And she was like, huh. And then, yeah, that's kind of what that and then the birds that were around this lake where she was. So there was like white ibises that they're, they're around this lake. I mean, they were like pigeons. They were that tame. You could get that close, like five feet from them. They didn't care. But yeah. That's,
0: that's so cool. And, and it, it reminds me of some of the parallels to things of faith where if you force it, it's not going to happen. You know, right. if you sit someone down and, and whack them over the head with the Bible, that's the least effective thing you can do. But if someone just says, Hey, come and see, this is amazing. Yeah. That that's, such a beautiful part of the journey and to share that joy with someone and to meet people where they're at. You know, my my four-year-old daughter is thrilled by crows. And mm-hmm. I love crows. I think they're fascinating. A lot of people, you know, ugh, crows, they're digging in my trash cans. Um, but to meet her right there, every time she sees a crow, she goes, mommy, what kind of bird is that? You know, I'm not going to say, well, you know, it's the same kind of bird the last 87 times you pointed one out to me. <laughs> I, I, we, we get excited together every time. And, and that's yes. part of, I think, the journey of birding. David, you you yes. mentioned to me, and in, in, I sent out this a little initial questionnaire for the podcast guests, and you mentioned to me that grief was part of your entry into birding. And um, I wonder if you would share some of the story about how grief has been your, your partner. And it sounds like in some ways part of the gateway to get
1: you into birding. Sure. So um, my, my dad was a birder, and uh, I have an uncle on my mom's side who were both into birding. And they, I don't remember my dad ever really particularly trying to get me into it other than like, you know, I went through a phase as a kid where the, we had backyard feeders and what those birds were, were kind of interesting to me. And so at least from that, I knew like chickadee and tufted titmouse and white-breasted nuthatch and cardinal, you know, that was about what I knew. Um, The big four. Yes, the big four. Um, And then um, when... I was in junior high. Some of my junior high teachers organized this summer two week trip to the rainforest in Peru, and I wanted to go. and my dad heard about this and he he said, "I want to go." so he decided the whole family would go and then my uncle uh Uncle Bill, and his wife Susan, who were also birders, we all decided we would go. and so this is part of the like birding part is they were excited for the birds there. I was um, like 15 and I was not at all. And yet, I guess it's like a father-son bonding thing. He made me get up and go out with him a few times and I hated it. Like, I don't remember (laughs) anything we saw. I did not care uh, whatsoever. Um, And then, you know, that was like 2000, I think. And then, you know, 13 years later, uh, my dad... Um, Started having some physical health problems, and it turns out it was ALS, right, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And so, um, you know, you know that was hard because there's nothing to be done. It was during the midst of the Ice Bucket Challenge, which made it increasingly bizarre because here's everybody participating this really kind of goofy, joyful fundraising thing. Who most of them probably don't know anybody who's ever had it. So it was surreal. It's a surreal time to uh, to, to, for my dad to go through that, he had a dark sense of humor. So I think he thought it was kind of funny, but, um, but at some point I just, I I think maybe it was just thinking about how my dad and I maybe, well, we had some hobbies we did together, but just kind of like all of a sudden it, you know, like you start looking back at things in the past in a new light. I think when when, when it seems your time together with somebody has grown shorter. And so I think some of it was just wanting to be more connected to him. And so like taking up this hobby um, and then my uncle too, my uncle Bill, who went on that trip also ended up some years before my dad diagnosed with some rare neurological condition related to Parkinson's whose name uh, even he and his wife (laughs) had a hard time remembering. But um, so I just, decided to take up this hobby as a way to be connected with them, and two, it kind of gave my dad and I, or my Uncle Bill and I, something to talk about, other than, you know, the, the illness at hand. Um, and, and, and with that, even though my dad's health was failing, one of the memories I love from that was being in Baton Rouge where he lived with him and my mom on our back porch, just sitting with him. And he mentioned, Oh yeah, there's this hawk that lands in the cypress tree. They lived around a small, it was like a suburb. So there's like houses around this pond, but house across the way had a cypress tree and he's, and he he thought it was probably a Cooper's hawk or something like that. And so it landed and um, you know, I had a spotting scope with me. So I, uh, or maybe binoculars. So I got it, tuned in and I was like, that's not a Cooper's hawk. And it was a Mississippi kite. Wow. Which are fairly common, like around Baton Rouge. Those are not rare, but I was still really new to birding. I mean, um,
0: I've never seen one. We don't have them out here.
1: Yeah. So they, that, and my dad had, I guess, not seen one or didn't recall seeing one. And so it, it was, yeah, it just was nice to be able to share that with him, a life bird together um and then too now when i see mississippi kites it's something you know i think of him which funnily enough we do have a breeding pair here in west virginia there is a mississippi kite spot oh that's cool yeah just up around this residential area where there's a bunch of big trees that have been cleared out and they fly on up from down south and they they breed here so Mm. um and then too once my dad uh my dad died in 2015 and so uh my grief work was just a lot of birding that that year I mean I don't know birding. yeah and then sometimes crying while I bird
0: <laughs> yeah Yeah. there's something yeah. to that I think that birding can be an act of prayer and in the way that grief is an act of prayer and that those things go together and sometimes I am I'm on the trails near our house you know I'm a pastor and we carry a lot we carry a lot yeah. of people's stories and you know i I do my best not to break down at a funeral service, even though uh, I loved that person too. I've been at this church for eight years and, you know, you get close to people. Um, But then I take that out to the trails and every once in a while I'll pass someone and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, yes, yes. This is part of my process. You know, (laughs) This is what I do. I cry and I try not to drip on my binoculars.
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I do. It is like prayer. I mean, I think of Jesus saying, you know, consider the sparrows. Right. Um, Which, you know, There's kind of a a slightly crazy part of me that thinks one could build a case for birding as a sacrament from that, you know, an outward invisible sign of the inward and spiritual grace of God, right? Um, You know, consider the sparrows and God's providence and provision for them. Um, Or I forget which psalm it's in, where, where the psalmist is in the temple and sees swallows nesting near the altar, right? And that even they find welcome in the house of God. And so yeah, for me, birding is is prayer at times. I mean, sometimes it is just tearing across the street to 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 move, you know, 229 to 230. <laughs> but on some <laughs> days it is, you know, prayer thinking about God's uh, provision for the created order. That there's this whole mysterious and wonderful world around us that we do not see because we mm-hmm. do not look,
0: and that um, it's been there the whole time. That's yeah. what shocked me. I've only been birding for about three years, and I'm like, what else haven't I noticed? The yeah. birds have been singing the whole time. I never listened. the The birds have been in my yard the whole time. I never paid attention. What else yes. is God doing right around me that I'm like, la 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 la? I'm so stressed yeah. out by my normal life that I'm I'm missing it.
1: Right. Yeah, for me, that moment, like where it really hit me for that was when I lived in Athens, West Virginia, I'd been birding for a couple of years at that point. But where the parsonage was, was again, the whole town's kind of on top of a hill. And in September, late August, September, if you look up on any given evening between 530 and 730 p.m., you'll see common night hawks silently migrating south in these groups just swirling and diving and catching, you know, bugs, you know, hundreds of feet up above your head. And yeah, I just, that's what I thought. Like, what have I been missing? Like these birds have been having these lives traveling in groups, you know, hundreds of them sometimes, um, silently doing this aerial dance to eat and move South. And I, how many nights have these things been above me? And I just didn't know it, didn't think, didn't just never looked up.
0: Yeah. The fact that so much of migration happens at night is so mm. fascinating to me that we're laying in our beds and over our heads are thousands of warblers or nighthawks or, you know, some combination mm. thereof that this all happens in darkness and in silence and kind of this, this shroud of, shroud of night. And um. yeah, the miracles are happening right over our heads as we're, we're laying there in bed or doom scrolling or, or whatever is happening, right, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's astonishing. And I think it says something about the work of God in the world that seen or seen or unseen, it's that heartbeat of creation. So yes. what are you looking forward to seeing this spring in West Virginia? Are there any migrations coming through that you kind of have in your mental <laughs> list of I can't miss the XYZ?
1: The, the only, I I mean, with last year being my big year, there's, there, I've seen a lot of what one can see in this state. Uh, Somehow last year I missed orange crown warbler in the state.
0: How can you call yourself
1: a birder, David? Well, (laughs) I I imagine out in Southern California, they're probably everywhere too with those yellow rumps right now. I I saw like three of them this week. (laughs) Yeah. So here in West Virginia, they are more rare. They're Even in migration, they're not... Oh, I mean, I think in migration too, they're pretty easy to overlook with some of the other birds. So yeah, somehow I just missed on that. Um, the only other thing is I still don't have alder... I think I'm gonna... Yeah, alder flycatcher is still not on my life list. And there are two spots in the state where I think they breed sometimes. And last year I went to one of them and they were just not to be heard or seen. Um, thankfully, there was some other things to pick up there. Um, it's one of those spots. It's like a swamp up in the higher altitude, so you can get um, Canada warblers and morning warblers and alder flycatchers if one is lucky. Um, so, so I'm hoping for those. And right now, even for my five mile radius, our whole state, we're kind of waiting on some more some more waterfowl, some more ducks. It's been a fairly mild winter, and so the ducks just haven't been coming on down south like they normally do. So,
0: hmm. yeah. The the universe owes you some ducks.
1: Perhaps. I mean, again, <laughs> this year I, they, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just being open to the birds that come to me. Um, yeah.
0: But That's a good word.
1: Species, yeah. Some more, some more ducks, duck species would be nice. Yeah. Um, if anything, what I would love is just to find something really rare in my five mile radius. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be fun that again, like that. It's something that I might've overlooked with a more frantic pace of birding. Mm. Um, you know, to go back to the Townsend solitaire, I mentioned like that's, I mean, if you know, I encourage anybody who knows what a Northern mockingbird looks like to go Google a picture of a Townsend solitaire. Cause one could easily just look up at a gray bird. I mean, when I saw the pictures of the Townsend to- Solitaire in our state, I was like, I probably would have looked at that and just would have been like oh, a mockingbird. I mean, they're fairly distinguishable from one another, but right, one can get so tuned into wanting to see something new or more rare, that you don't take the time to slow down and see what is actually rare that just looks close to what's familiar. <laughs>
0: That's that's so true. Or or even what's familiar, but if you pay close attention to it, you start to notice different things. Like if I watch the warblers in the backyard, they have different personalities and one of them's yep. kind of bossing the other one's around. And one of <laughs> yeah. them is shy and hanging back. And you know, there's there's diversity even within the sameness of them that I miss if I'm yeah. like, oh, more morning doves. Okay, <laughs> move along, more crows, move along. Um, but that that holy work of paying attention, which I think really is an apt description for, for prayer is, is learning that, that skill and that, that practice of paying attention. How, how does your faith and your spirituality influence your birding and vice versa? How are those things connected
1: for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a a good question. Um, You know, I think they're connected as I was talking about earlier is just thinking of Birds and really the created world around us, and thinking about God's providence and love as at work there, completely independent of human beings. Right, like God pours out God's love for them as well. Um, you, or I think of in Genesis, you know, it says, "Be fruitful and multiply," and we o- we only ever think of that applying to human beings, but God gives that same command to creatures as well. You know, other non-human creatures as well. Um, and I would like to think, as I think Ellen Davis may have said this in a class I had with her, maybe she wrote it, you know.
0: I'm but, a little jealous you got classes with Ellen Davis. Uh, she was great. I know she her through great. her books, but to
1: sit in uh, one of her lecture halls must have been really fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It it. I went to Duke Divinity and you take two semesters of Old Testament with the same professor. So I got to sit under her teaching for a year and it was amazing Just every mm. time she speaks, it's wise. Yeah. And I think it was her, maybe somebody were reading for her class just talked about that, you know, God probably didn't mess up and make these two, these twin commands of being fruitful and multiplying something that puts us in competition with one another. Hmm. Right. Like that's not the kind of God we, we serve, uh, that we can both, that both humans and other creatures can be fruitful and multiply in a way that doesn't destroy the other. Um, and you know, you mentioned paying attention—the holy work of paying attention. I do think that's what birding helps me in my spiritual life: is paying attention to the people around me, paying attention to my own life and my own soul. Um, um, you know, slowing down. And and I think too, like with birding, it it takes a new way of seeing to be able to be good at it. And and I've used birding as as kind of a metaphor you know, in, in teaching about the Christian faith, right? Like that part of being Christian, I think is seeing the world in a different way. Right. So like the Beatitudes were just the gospel lesson for the revised common lectionary this past Sunday. And in like what Jesus is saying only makes any sense. If you see a different world than the one we're all born into, because otherwise saying people who are mourning or hungry are blessed or happy sounds insane. Um, like with bird and like it takes new eyes to see and like birding is that because when i know i was new to it and i think this is a lot of people's story you see a cool bird and you're like oh well it was yellow and gray and black and some white this should be easy like that seems so distinct and then you like open to the warblers and like some of the finches you're like oh no like <laughs> that's 30 different birds and you know you have to it's, you you have to it, involves training yourself to to look and see in a new way where you're paying attention to where those colors are and shapes and patterns on the head and the tail, and the wings and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and so too in our, our, our spiritual life, it involves looking at ourselves and the world around us in a new way. Um, you know, I think like, for example, I, I think just the culture here in the U S we grew up in is kind of the most important question we can think to ask of anything we do is do I like this? Hmm. And I think our faith teaches us that's not always a great question because sometimes we do not like things that are good for us, like exercise or eating healthy, right? Like I hate running or exercise, but that doesn't mean it's bad for me. (laughs) Just means sometimes I want things that aren't the best for me. Um, and, And so, yeah, I think birding can kind of help teach us to see and look in a new way that in this way where the stakes seem low it can kind of open us in a way where we can apply that to our life where the stakes are maybe a little bit higher.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that an exercise in learning how to see and yes and notice and, and love, I think, right? That these, these yeah. birds are all so different that you talk to birders and you're like, which bird don't you like? And they're like, what kind of a question is that? You know, like right. <laughs> sometimes when I'm trying to hear a certain bird and then the mockingbird in the backyard won't shut up. I'm not a fan of the mockingbird, but I don't
1: dislike, like it's just doing what it was created to do and, and to love true. them for what they are. With birding, yeah, that just learning to delight in these birds and not looking to them for any kind of utility or benefit to me or to us as humans and that wouldn't it be great if that's how we approached every person we met, right? Like that we can just delight in who they are and how God made them and, you know, their personality, like you mentioned, the different personalities of the birds, um, you know, that we're not, because I know for me as a pastor, I'm sure I'm probably not the only one. Like you meet people and like, sometimes the brain works like, would this person be a good leader? Like, should I ask this person to be on this leadership team or teach this class or, you know, and right, like to just step back and um, just delight in who they are and what God has given them. Because at least for me, I've learned I'm pretty bad at, I'm pretty bad, or maybe I'm getting better, but at least initially I was very bad at like who I thought would be good leadership and who I kind of overlooked. Mm -hmm. And it was the people who I overlooked who were, the ones who typically like stepped up and were mm. the most wonderful leaders in communities I've served. Mm.
0: That is a that is a good point to ponder. Just because yes. the mockingbird's the loudest doesn't mean you should let him run all the things. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, that they that the that you know, yeah, and that there's other birds to be seen that are much quieter and less ostentatious. And their yeah. mode of being.
0: <laughs> I had a professor in college who was very, very extroverted. And his wife was very, very introverted. And he said, you know, when he would talk to her about his teaching, she would say, You need to remember that introverts also are smart. <laughs> like, you need <laughs> to think about how to teach your classes in a way that's not just whoever raises their hand first. She's like, Because I would never speak in your class. And I'm I'm a pretty smart. She was a, you know, she was an MD. She was, she was plenty smart. She's like, but you have to think about how to draw out those the the birds that, you know, I, I heard my first Virginia rail this, this weekend and oh, rails yes. are notoriously shy. I never saw it. I sat for a long time, but I, I heard it. And, um, and my app confirmed it. Cause I'm, I'm still new enough that I'm like, <laughs> yes. I think I heard, I don't know. Um, but I never, I never saw it, but to be able to even hear it was like, okay, I'm growing in my birding and I'm growing in my paying attention that that's a new sound. And that, that rails, if you want to even have a, a you know, a ghost's chance of, of seeing one, you have to sit very still and very quietly for a long time. And mm. I felt God working in my soul. Cause I am a mover and a, and a runner and a go-getter. And, and God was like, no, 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 no. Shh. The rail, the rail yes. is a beautiful thing.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that's absolutely a lesson one learns through birding is that certain birds, you just have to sit, be still and know that it's going to come to you. Uh The most recent one of that for me, I was down in Orlando uh, and it was uh, snail kites, snail Mm -hmm. kites, right? And they have this very particular diet of apple snails. And there was a spot uh, I was told, you know, that I found through eBird and I was waiting there. And I thought like, and I, I, you know, I was in Florida and I was excited. Like, I want to see as many cool new lifers here as I can. And I got there didn't see a single snail kite, but I just was like, okay, like it's still kind of early in the morning and you know, I know hawks, they like, they like things to warm up a little bit. Um, so I just sat and waited and not only did they eventually come and I got some great looks, but I saw some other amazing birds just sitting there, like some really great close looks at painted buntings that just Mm -hmm. popped into the bushes right where I was. Um, And yeah, I think for our spiritual life, I think that's the other work of prayer that birding can teach us that's so hard is that listening to God is part of prayer. And sometimes one has to sit, come to that time of listening for a long time before you hear anything. Yeah. And but It's hard. a skill.
0: It's a skill yeah. like anything else. And I think we think, well, we have two ears. We're all good at listening. Like, no, we're not. I'm not. And, and yeah. to learn that skill of how much of listening is not just sitting and being still, but quieting that inner cacophony of, you know, the grocery list and the emails that need yes. to be sent and the, oh my goodness, did I remember to lock the front door? And, um, and learning to still that as well, to hear that, that whisper from God, right? That's the the story of Elijah yeah. and the fire and the whirlwind and all yep. these things. And God is mm-hmm. in the whisper. And I'm like, well, God, could you just be in the whirlwind? Cause I could hear that. Like, no matter what, I'm going to notice the whirlwind, but
1: often God right. is,
0: God is gentler than, than we, we would like.
1: Yes. And and I think for the work of ministry too, listening, so important in, in, Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book *Life Together*, that's like the first thing he talks about is the ministry of listening, which is not just for pastors to to our to our lay listeners here. It, we all are called to ministry, and that's kind of how he talks about it: is that we all have this ministry of listening. Like, wouldn't it be great if we as Christians were known for our willingness to slow down and really hear another human being when they're when they're speaking to us. And oftentimes I think people are really hungry to share their pain and their burdens with somebody who's just going to listen. And, and, and kind of like, it takes slowing down to distinguish between those little chips birds do and realize like, Oh, that's not a cardinal. Maybe that's something else. You know, people are looking for an opening to share a fear or pain, but they'll, they come at it indirectly. And I think, I mean, you've probably experienced this when somebody's like, you know pastor i i have a doctor's appointment this coming up this week right and it on the surface it can be like okay like do you need a ride or something but I, you know what that person is trying to say is they're scared yeah you, you know it's probably some you know it's it's they're afraid of what the doctor could say um and 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 it's learning to listen to what they're, you know, to what they're saying, like what, you know, kind of what's behind what they're saying. Uh, And I think burning can teach us that to slow down and to see in a new way and to to listen in a new way.
0: Yeah. And in many ways, it feels like the most important work that I do because it influences all of the rest of the work that I do. Like it's, it's soul work. Birding is soul work. It's, yeah. you know, I used to say it's exercise, but now I do like 40 minute miles because I'm burning, and my, my fitness app is like, I'm not counting that. And I'm like, come on, I'm outside. Um, but it does, it it works on you. And I think that's the thing I appreciate. So much about being able to do this podcast and talk to so many birders is loving the same thing forms you in a particular way. So I'm talking to a lot of birders who are people of faith, but I'm also talking to birders who are atheist or agnostic or sure. or part of a different faith than than my Christian faith. I'm um, not even talked to I have not, I think, spoken to any other Presbyterians. It's very ecumenical. <laughs> ecumenical podcast but because we love the same thing it is forming us in a similar way to be people who listen and notice and love and want to care for the earth and want to learn from one another and I it has just been such a gift to be able to have these conversations because I feel the edification in my own soul and my own heart in learning learning from people like you so David I would love to hear where you are finding hope these days and the answer that you you put into my little questionnaire made me laugh do you remember what you wrote?
1: Oh no, no I didn't.
0: You wrote um in scripture and in the church and then in parentheses. Seriously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I
0: want to hear about that because it just made me smile.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do find hope in scripture and in the church. Um I mean, what what could I say in a few minutes about what one finds in scripture? Um right now, we'll, you know, I, I, I meet with a spiritual director and I was in, uh, he doesn't assign homework there opportunities. He says,
0: <laughs> I'm going to use that in my parenting. It's not, homework. it's go. an opportunity. It's not <laughs> yes. a chore. It's an opportunity. Yes.
1: This is an opportunity. Yes. Um, to, to sit and you know, pray through Lectio Divina, however one wants to do it through Psalm 139 verses one through 18. Um, you know, it's about, you know, uh, I mean, here's where I'm revealing I'm an Episcopalian. I don't have it memorized or anything like that. But you know, it, it's the psalmist dwelling on how God has made the psalmist and knows the psalmist from before. You know, as as the as the psalmist was being knit together in you know their mother's womb, and you know, and uh, this this like vast sense of how God is you know, behind us and before us and with us and just knows everything about us uh, and loves us and chooses to be with us. And I've been finding a lot of hope in that for me. Uh, And if I tie that to birding, just thinking of God's provision is there with the birds as well. Um, And and I I think that can sound corny because I think there's kind of this train of thought on the internet that like, well, there's so many awful and Things in the universe, and the universe is so big, like, God doesn't really like, God wouldn't bother God's self with our small little mundane things. But scripture is like, yes, God does. Like, and it's great. Like, you know, God isn't a human being, like, just with like a thousand computer monitors you know, all the
0: tabs are open all the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're all just tabs on God's browser. And, um, you know, God's not going to check in with us when we're doing something mundane, or what seems like a, you know, a, you know, a small sin or whatever, but that God knows us intimately and cares about the small, mundane quotidian parts of our life. And I think that's great. And that gives Mm. me hope. Mm. Um, And in the church, I just, I mean, the church church in the U.S. is is on the decline. I don't think anybody would argue argue that. But I just think of the people who I know who continue to commit to it, whether that's as clergy or as laity. And um, particularly when they've gone through things, sorry, this is making me a little emotional, that if I were them, I would have just walked away, whether that's because how they were you know treated as as a woman or somebody who identifies as a woman or lgbtqa siblings and and they refuse to walk away from who jesus is
0: hmm. that's a word hmm. well david for those of our listeners who are, are do not consider themselves part of the Christian faith or don't have the same history in the Christian church, I'm going to tell sure. them a little bit about what it takes to become ordained. Because this has been, <laughs> I'm sure, a very long journey for you. Um, yes, I was ordained in the in the Presbyterian Church, but there there are similar things that we walk through, and there are classes, there's seminary, there's exams, there's psychological testing. I mean, it is yep. a rigorous. Process and yes. we're recording this in January. It's going to air later in the spring. But tell us about your ordination because it was just a couple of days ago. Yeah. What was it like? I saw a picture of you in your vestments and you had the yes. the dove of the Holy Spirit on there. So a bird made its way into your ordination, it, which just tickled it, yes, me so much. <laughs> tell <laughs> yes. me about where was it and what was it like?
1: Yeah, so um, I'll back up and say this, like I was ordained a United Methodist pastor. So it was you know I've I don't. I guess depending on one's theology, I've been ordained twice or once. You're a um, very <laughs> ecumenical soul. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so the the but my ordination it, this the service itself it was here at Trinity Episcopal Church, which which I am the rector of now, which is a what I've learned becoming an Episcopalian is whatever everyone else has a normal word for, we have a fancy word, right? So we don't have a custodian, it's a sextant. And it's not senior pastor or lead pastor or just the pastor or the clergy person, it's the rector. Uh, so, so I'm rector. <laughs> it's
0: so true. One of my dearest friends is an Episcopal priest out in Massachusetts. And yeah. I'm always saying, Translate, Anna, translate, translate. Yes. <laughs> She's using all the in our sextant. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Okay, yes. custodian.
1: Right. Check. Yes. You yeah. have your oh, own language. God. We have a leadership team, but it's called the vestry, right? Like, and like, I have never heard of any other church tradition that calls their leadership team that. So yeah, we're, and so I'm rector here at Trinity Episcopal Church in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, So they hired me on, we were in conversation while I was a United Methodist pastor to come here per the rules of the Episcopal Church, which are called the canons. One coming from another tradition, like I did, where I was ordained. I was a lay person for a year, then first ordained a deacon which for our listeners who are not part of the Christian faith, they are also clergy, but they serve a different role. It's more of a, a role of, of service to the community and to the world and assisting the priest or the pastor, uh, particularly in the sacraments like communion. And so I was a deacon for six months, which again, is part of the canons. And so I was ordained a priest here at Trinity Episcopal church on Saturday. Um, uh, And it, it was just a big joyous celebration. My mom and my sister were up, you know, my wife Colleen was there and my kids and the church showed up and some of my Methodist pastor friends were there as part of it, uh, including, uh, who was my district superintendent as United Methodist pastor. So kind of like my boss, I think is probably the easiest way to translate that. And he was there. Um, so it was just a big, you know, big joyous day. And, um, lots, you know, lots of prayer, and there's a lot of ceremony to it. You know, it's tradition in the Episcopal Church that there's a long prayer called a litany, uh, which prays for just about everything one can imagine um, in the world. And uh, a friend of mine here, who's a student at the university and joined our church about a year ago, uh, uh, canted it, like sang, sang the words, which was nice. But the tradition is, is for the person who's to be ordained prostrates themselves, like lays down face flat on the floor as a sign of humility. So there was just all this kind of right, rich symbolism to it that was just really moving. And um, my a friend of mine, uh, who's canon to the ordinary, which is the fancy Episcopal title for assistant to the bishop, or something like that. <laughs> Isn't um, the
0: bishop insulted that you're calling him or her ordinary?
1: <laughs> I, you would think. You would right.
0: think. <laughs> it's like the common yellow legs. You're like, that's just me. And Like, give it uh, a better yes. name. <laughs>
1: um, he preached a, a, a beautiful sermon. It was the feast of Saint Thomas Aquinas, who, you know, and part of where I and here's where I'm trying to tie it back into birding, you know, t- you know, Thomas Aquinas wrote Summa Theologica, which tried to synthesize kind of all human knowledge and ways of knowing and this very expansive work on. Everything, philosophical, theological, the created order. And, you know, towards the end of his life, you know, Thomas Aquinas just realized how inexhaustible it all was and how inexhaustible God is. And I think of birding is that way, like it's just inexhaustible to be fascinated by these creatures that God has made. Um, and, but that coming to look at them or study them, you know, just sends us deeper into who God is and the love of God. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't compete uh, with the claims of faith. Um, so yeah, it was just a big community celebration. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and the part of it too, that I, I didn't know till the night before that this was a thing that afterwards there's kind of like a receiving line, like one might have for a wedding or something else, but people come and ask for my blessing beginning with the Bishop. And, and so that was just really moving to just have, All these people who came here to, to support me and say yes to this calling on my life, to then come and ask for, uh, for my blessing. Mm.
0: That's That's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Mm. That's really, that's a beautiful part of that tradition.
1: Mm.
0: Well, congratulations and blessings on your ministry, blessings on your birding. Before we, before we go, I think I know the answer to this one, but what is your
1: favorite bird? That is that is such a hard question. I but you know, probably Mississippi Kite. That's what I'd have to go with because of the experience of seeing it with my dad. And, you know, I've seen them numerous other times. But I think they're a very cool bird. Mm. Um and it it helps me think of my dad who played this part in me uh embracing this hobby and and teaching me the faith, really. I guess mm. that's, that's a whole nother story. But uh, you know, he was a stalwart and faithful Sunday school teacher. Um, up until a few months before he died, he was still teaching junior high Sunday school, and that and is a calling. Our, uh, yes, <laughs> there is no there is no less thankful job than teaching junior high students, and he was committed to that. So, yeah, hmm. Mississippi kite
0: candidate for sainthood, your dad. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a beautiful story thank you David for sharing about your father and your journey into birding and your faith and your ordination and all of these pieces where can people find you if they want to follow more about your your birding life or your
1: ministry yeah so you can find you can find me on Twitter I don't really have any or you know if you know they're curious about my ordination that service is on our our church's Facebook page so if you search Trinity Episcopal Church Huntington, West Virginia or Huntington WV on Facebook. You should be able to find our Facebook page.
0: We will find you on Twitter. And I will also, yeah, I will link to to your social media if you want to connect with David and hear more about West Virginia birds. Maybe one of you listening lives in West Virginia and you want to challenge him. You want to beat his 232 (laughs) birds in 2022. You still have time. Yes. David Johnston, thank you so much for the gift of your time and your wisdom and your story and for being with us today on The Thing With Feathers podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Courtney. Blessings.
0: The Thing With Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. What is on your soul? Is it that...